This is a Federal News Network podcast. Girl Scout cookies have it. So do many crackers and breads. Lipstick, shampoo, and soap use it. It's even in peanut butter. But much of the world's palm oil comes from foreign producers that might use forced labor. That's why the Homeland Security Department recently banned palm oil and palm oil products from certain companies. For how they discover forced labor situations and the process for detaining a wide range of prohibited products, we turn to the Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Trade at U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Brenda Smith. Ms. Smith, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And your office has been pretty busy lately because also cotton from certain regions of China, palm oil. Tell us the background for all of this type of work. It has been a busy time, Tom. We have had a great deal of activity issuing what are known as withhold release orders. It's basically a technical term for direction to our ports of entry that ask them to identify and to hold or detain a shipment that we believe may be produced using forced labor. As you mentioned, we've been really busy lately. Um, We've issued these orders on palm oil, on cotton, and over the years on a number of other agricultural and um, mined products. And CBP can do this on its own? You don't need sanctions, say, from the State Department or Treasury or anyone else? We have had the authority to detain goods that, that we suspect have been made with forced labor actually since the early 1930s. So it's a it's been a long-standing authority, but really just in the last five years or so, when our congressional stakeholders as well as our private sector stakeholders have indicated a significant interest in ensuring that U.S. businesses face a level playing field um, economically and U.S. consumers really know where their goods are coming from and do not have to use goods made with forced labor, have we really been supported in using that authority? And so typically what we do is gain information from just the the types of uh, agencies that you just mentioned, the State Department, the Treasury Department, and the Department of Labor that do quite a bit of research on forced labor risks and conditions around the world. And we use their information and combine it with additional information, sometimes uh, in a a better environment through field visits, at other times through investigative reporting or think tank um, research to build a case around the conditions that exist. And we are then able to base our order on that case. And do you ever get whistleblowers that might raise that issue to someone in CBP, say, hey, this container has got, you know, tainted whatever the material might be. We do. In fact, we have um, really two types of whistleblowers. Uh, The first kind is employees of businesses that um, are not doing the right thing, and they feel compelled, having observed conditions at close hand, to gather evidence. Sometimes it's documentary, sometimes it's it's witness testimony to be able to outline the conditions that exist in their particular place of employment. Um, The other type of whistleblower, frankly, is the industry itself. And what we have found not only with uh, labor issues, but also a number of other trade compliance issues, is that um, companies know their business. And so they know when 
conditions are not right or when prices are too low. And very often through our relationships with the private sector, we are able to learn of either specific areas or specific entities that are violating the law. We're speaking with Brenda Smith. She's Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Trade at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And are the materials that are detained mostly commodities like palm oil or cotton, or does it sometimes involve manufactured products? It really is both. And in fact, our authority requires us to detain and then exclude goods made wholly or in part. And that's what the statute says. Um, and so that allows us not only to look at those, those basic commodities, the agricultural products or the things that have been mined like cobalt or gold, but also um, requires not only CBP, but also um, importing community to know their supply chain. And so if, for example, cotton um, that is grown using forced labor is made into thread, which is then made into a fabric and turned into a pair of blue jeans, um, those blue jeans cannot be brought into the United States. And while that's a very complex challenge for, for all of us to be able to identify all those supply chain linkages, it is um, a way that we can really send a message that forced labor is unacceptable. And how do you go about verifying, say, there's a specific shipment coming, say, from Uyghur region of China, the Uyghurs that might have been forced into picking the cotton and so forth, processing the cotton, and then having seen a shipping container port with thousands and thousands of these big boxes, what happens to enable you to verify what's in there and where it came from? Well, that is one of our biggest challenges. But typically what we start with is information and data. Um, you may know that, that Customs and Border Protection collects a pretty significant amount of data about each shipment that comes into the United States. It's uh, importer, what port of entry it came through, who the manufacturer was. And then through our analytical tools, we are often able to make the connection between that importer and manufacturer to a specific farm or a specific region of a country. And um, we are also able to uh, leverage other government information as well as financial information about the entities, the corporate entities that are manufacturing or growing these goods. And so it's a very complex investigation of those connections. But that's what we do. We make those linkages. It sounds like you must have links to other elements within Homeland Security, like Homeland Security investigations, for example. That's right. We work very closely with our colleagues at Homeland Security Investigations. And in fact, they have a complementary authority um, that allows them to investigate criminal activity related to forced labor. And so very often we share information about our cases and our investigations, and we coordinate um, and very often take action in a, a um, collaborative fashion um, to both gather information uh, take civil action, uh, issue penalties, seize the goods that are coming in that have been made with forced labor, and then in an ideal world, be able to take action uh, from a criminal perspective with criminal penalties. And what about the possible or potential or in, I should say intended recipient of these materials? 
How do you determine whether they were knowingly buying materials produced by forced labor or whether they were just the innocent bystander here, not knowing the supplier's situation? So that is exactly what our investigations look to identify. And um, we go through a lot of documents. We take a lot of testimony to try to get at intent. Um, We also marry that up with a great deal of communication and outreach so that the various parts of the supply chains, the importers, the manufacturers, and especially the U.S. consumers are well aware what the responsibility is to ensure that forced labor isn't used at any level throughout their supply chains. This is not so different from the expectation related to not only other trade compliance issues, but also things like um, our responsibilities associated with um, anti-terrorism, right? We, we, for many years, we've talked in the, the trade world about materials that could come in in those containers. And our expectation is that our private sector partners will know what's in that box and where it's coming from. And then what happens to the material itself? Is it returned by receiver pays shipping costs or does it get dumped overboard? What happens to the stuff? So it depends at which point uh, both CBP and the importer will take action. Very often when CBP issues its withhold release order, um, that is sort of the first notice that a private sector entity has that we have a concern. Very often, while they are addressing that concern through conversation and information sharing with us, they will actually re-export the goods, send them to somewhere else while they straighten this out with the United States. As you may know, the U.S. is the only country with a customs administration authority to take this sort of action on forced labor. Other countries like Australia and the U.K., Um, are more private sector focused and private sector certification focused. So very often those goods will be sent somewhere else. Um, In instances where we have already done a pretty thorough investigation and the goods, we have detained the goods, we can then either seize the goods, in which case we would then destroy them, or further allow the re-export. Um, through a process known as exclusion. Got it. Well, anything else we need to know about this process? It's a really um, good area, I think, for us to be involved in because of our opportunity really to support U.S. businesses that are trying to be competitive and don't use forced labor. But we also want to be sure that consumers, U.S. consumers, are part of the solution. Um, asking questions about where your goods come from, um, doing a bit of research before you make your purchases about what are the conditions behind. You know, so many of us have just finished a, a lot of holiday shopping, and I know that many of us bought goods that are using materials that we have flagged as high risk of using forced labor. Cotton, for example, is is really pretty much woven through so much of of um, what we wear and what we use in our homes. Um, but we really want U.S. consumers to, to ask those questions. I also want to flag for you that um, January is a, a pretty special month for us. 
Um, it is uh, the National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. And we'd like to take advantage of the opportunity really for people to educate themselves around the challenge of forced labor and its really horrific impacts. Um, there, there's been um, a lot of great press around the impact on individuals that are forced to work in conditions that they, they don't have a freedom of movement passports are held, they enter into a great deal of debt and then can't get out of it. And it's something none of us would want to support or condone as we make our, our purchases. And so would really encourage people to use this month to, to educate themselves a bit on sites like the International Labor Organization. And we particularly want to call out January 11th as Wear Blue Day just as a reminder that these these conditions exist, but that we can do something about it. Brenda Smith is Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Trade at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. We'll post this interview along with links to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.